from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Today's topic is the subject of marijuana and driving. Now, that's obviously something that lots of us, you know, wonder about, whether it's because we ourselves use marijuana or use marijuana and drive ourselves, or we know people who do. Uh, there's a lot of debate about it politically, with people saying we can't legalize marijuana until we've resolved this issue, and other people saying it's not really a major issue. So what I decided was to have the person who may be the world's leading expert on this subject, come on and join me on Psychoactive. His name is Paul Armentano. He is the deputy director of Normal for many years. He's been working at Normal since 1994, which is the same year that I founded the Lindesmith Center, which eventually became Drug Policy Alliance. So we're talking like 28 years. And he is widely regarded in the world of people who think and study marijuana as sort of the brain, the brain about marijuana, the one who is familiar with the thousands 
and thousands of studies who has synthesized it. Now, normal is, of course, the organization of the marijuana consumer. And so Paul obviously comes to this from a certain political perspective, one that favors the legalization of marijuana, but also very much an advocate of responsible marijuana use. So, Paul, thank you ever so much for joining me on Psychoactive. Well, thank you, Ethan, for having me. And as someone who, when I was cutting my teeth on this issue, looked to someone like you as the brains of the marijuana movement, I am flattered by your compliments. Well, I mean, Paul, I have to tell you, for so many years, it's like when a marijuana question pops up, you know, who's the go-to person? And the fact that you work at a fellow advocacy organization, on the one hand, it's a plus. Sometimes it'd be a negative because you think people are going to be biased. But what I've consistently seen with your writing and your research on this is that you really have an objective perspective. And I think that you're basically not just thinking about how this issue plays out in terms of the legalization debates, but also how do we make sure that people who use marijuana stay safe? And don't hurt anybody else. Absolutely. You know, I've always approached this issue from the standpoint of we want to have evidence-based policies. And in order to have evidence-based policies, there's got to be someone out there who's reviewed and understood and synthesized the evidence. And this is something where we have data, we have facts, but for so often the narrative that exists in this country, whether it's around marijuana or a number of other public policies, it isn't really driven by the facts and the data. It's driven by rhetoric. It's driven by emotion. And being cognizant of that, I did not want my own work and the messaging that I would put out there to be anything but evidence-based. That's always been my goal. And I feel like by doing that, we can have better conversations and ultimately we can have better sensible policies. Okay, so Paul, what I want to do is take our audience through this step by step. And at points, there's going to be elements of understanding research methodology and why certain studies are flawed or why certain studies are gold standard. So I've asked Paul to try to explain that as carefully as possible. But let's start off with the first question, which is, how does one test the impact of marijuana on driving? Is it in driver simulators? Is it on people who are actually driving? What are the different techniques for testing the impact of marijuana on driving? Well, one thing to keep in mind, Ethan, is that researchers have been posing this question for decades. This isn't something that only post-legalization investigators said this is something we ought to study. This is something we ought to understand better. Researchers around the world have been looking into this issue going back several decades. In fact, some of the earliest studies that we have were conducted in the Netherlands, but they are actually sponsored by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration of the United States. And in those studies, which probably the methods that they use will not be replicated again anytime soon. But in those initial studies, believe it or not, subjects were permitted to smoke marijuana and then get behind the wheel and drive in actual real world traffic. They had a driving instructor in the passenger seat. The instructor had the ability, there was essentially a kill switch on the car, and the instructor had the ability, if he or she desired to, to shut the car off in the middle of the experiment. But NHTSA's did three studies of this nature. One where individuals smoked marijuana, 
drove in real-world conditions in relatively rural areas, another study where they drove in urban areas, and a third study where they drove in rush hour congested traffic. And that was one of the ways researchers chose to study the impact of marijuana and driving. Interestingly, the drivers in that study did not have accidents. Certainly, I could imagine the liability if they did, but they did not, and those studies were done. Again, they were published by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration in the early 1990s. But since that time, NHTSA sponsored additional studies, and many of those are actually driving simulator studies. So again, individuals, they perform on a driving simulator test to get a baseline level of performance. Then they are administered cannabis. In virtually all of these instances, they're inhaling cannabis. And then 20, 30 minutes later, they're asked to drive on a simulated course and their performance is compared to their earlier baseline performance. And there's a number of simulator studies that have been done that way over the decades as well. Uh-huh. Now, those studies that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, I guess you abbreviate as NHTSA, the ones they paid to do in the Netherlands, those were back in the 80s, or early 90s? Those were done in the early 90s. Uh-huh. And that was one of the ones that found essentially no difference between marijuana users and drug-free drivers at the time. They found very little difference in driver performance after inhaling cannabis versus their baseline performance. What they essentially identified was that drivers under the influence of cannabis were cognizant that they were under the influence, and therefore they engaged in compensatory driving behaviors. In other words, they drove more slowly than they had at baseline, they made fewer lane changes, they left greater headway between their vehicle and the vehicle in front of them. Essentially, there were minor differences in performance, and those differences were fell into the category of compensatory driving. And I imagine there's some bias built into this in favor of marijuana safety findings because the people knew that they were engaged in a test and that they were being observed. So they were going to be ultra conscious of trying to drive carefully. That's very likely. In fact, when you look at some of the driving simulator studies, you see greater differences between baseline performance and performance after inhaling cannabis in the simulator studies than you saw in those initial on-road studies. And the variable could very well be that subjects in the latter studies knew they weren't driving on the road. They do. They were essentially engaging in, in, in a sort of a video game and that the stakes were not as high as were those subjects that were actually driving on the road in real world traffic. Mm -hmm. Now, when we talk about the notion of driving under the influence of marijuana, but what does it actually mean to say driving under the influence? I mean, we know on the one hand that if you've just gotten high and you're feeling high, you are under the influence. And we know on the other hand that if you haven't smoked marijuana in days, but it's still showing up in your urine because marijuana tends to show up in urine for a long time, that you're not driving under the influence. But there must be something in between. Is it all just a gray area for when one says you're no longer under the influence? It's a gray area to some respects under the law in certain jurisdictions that have imposed traffic safety laws that aren't based on identifiable impairment. In those instances, theoretically, you could have someone test positive for marijuana and be charged with driving under the influence 
even absent of any evidence of impaired driving. But in the majority of jurisdictions of this country, that is not the case. To be charged with driving under the influence of drugs or driving under the influence of cannabis, there has to be evidence of recent ingestion or exposure to a controlled substance. And then there must be evidence that someone is unable to drive a motor vehicle safely because they are under the influence of that substance that they recently ingested. And let me be clear, that standard applies regardless of the legality or illegality of the substance that is consumed. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm also thinking about situations like, for example, if I take an edible and when I'm coming down from the edible, it's seen my fatigue can really come on fast. And I'm wondering, like, the point at which we say somebody is no longer under the influence of marijuana, I'm just talking about not from a legal perspective, but in terms of people who use marijuana and drive, are there times when you're still under the influence of marijuana, you think, and it can impact your driving, but not really aware of it? Sure. And Ethan, again, like so many of these questions, I imagine you'll pose to me. These aren't novel questions. Again, scientists have, have asked this question multiple times. And we have numerous studies that have been designed to try and answer it. And if one is to look at the totality of data out there and try to find a consensus, it appears that, again, these are studies that are almost exclusively done with subjects who are inhaling cannabis. So the timeline for individuals using other formulations of cannabis, like edibles or tinctures or dabs, are going to be entirely different. And I would dare say right up front has not been studied very much, if at all. But with regard to inhaled cannabis, study after study tells us that about 20 minutes to 40 minutes, perhaps 60 minutes after a person inhales cannabis is when they are most acutely impaired when it comes to psychomotor performance. And we know this based on a variety of studies where individuals are given a number of psychomotor, behavioral, or cognitive tasks at baseline, they then inhale marijuana, and then they continue to do those tasks again, 30 minutes later, 60 minutes later, two hours later, four hours later. And what we see is the greatest differentiation from their baseline performance tends to take place in that 20 to 60 minute window. And then within about four hours after that window, they return to their baseline performance altogether. There's an interesting recent study that came out looking at a driving simulator test. And to your question, individuals were asked when they felt, when they perceived that they had returned to baseline performance. And interestingly, a number of subjects perceived the fact that they did about one hour earlier or before their actual objective performance returned to baseline performance. But again, we're talking about a, maybe a total window of about four to four and a half hours, but really about a 40-minute window at that 20 to 60-minute point where we see the greatest or most significant changes in performance. So we have some folks thinking that the effects of cannabis have worn off slightly before they actually have worn off. And now, are there also opposite studies I think I've seen where people think they're still somewhat impaired, but in fact, they're driving perfectly fine? Correct. What we see in a number of different simulator studies and some closed course driving studies is that when individuals are asked to assess their own performance after the fact, 
scientists will say, well, how do you think you did? We have a number of studies where the subjects will say, you know, I think I did rather poorly. But then when their actual performance is measured or assessed objectively, they did much better. They drove much better overall than the subjects perceived that they did. So they actually perceived themselves to perform worse than they actually did perform. And we see that in a number of studies. We have one particular study where individuals were given oral THC and asked to drive on a closed course. And a number of subjects, interestingly, refused to do so. They said, I don't feel that I can operate this vehicle safely at this point in time, which I bring up because it's so different than the reaction we often associate with alcohol, where we've had public messaging for decades that say, hey, look, take the keys from somebody who might be wanting to drive under the influence of alcohol, because so many individuals under the influence of alcohol, they become overconfident in their ability to drive safely. We tend to see just the opposite reaction with individuals that are impaired by cannabis. Mm -hmm. So, Paul, I want to get into this difference between marijuana and alcohol and its impact on driving shortly. But let's just start by breaking down the different aspects of driving, that when we're looking at the impact of marijuana or alcohol, or any psychoactive drug or activity on driving, we're talking about things like how fast people brake, whether they can keep a straight line or whether they're weaving. What are the other variables that people are being tested for in terms of driving safety? So generally, when these driving safety tests are done, they're assessing a number of different objective metrics. They're looking at not just overall speed, but the ability to maintain a consistent speed. They're looking at how much headway drivers leave between their vehicle and a vehicle in front of them. They're looking at reaction time, brake latency how well drivers focus on not only what's going on in front of them in traffic, but what's also taking place in their peripheral vision. They're looking at what's something known as standard deviation and lateral positioning, which is really just a fancy way of saying, do these drivers weave? Do they stay in their lane or do they weave across the median? Those are largely the issues that are being assessed. Certainly, if we're talking about a driving simulator study, scientists will assess, is there a greater likelihood that they had a motor vehicle accident during during the course of the simulated driving test than they did at baseline. Those are the sort of metrics that are looked at. I see. Okay, so let's get down to the basic alcohol versus marijuana differential, right? I mean, I think there's a broad awareness that alcohol is problematic for driving. And if you could just explain what makes alcohol so problematic, and then why is marijuana less so? Well, they manifest in very different ways. In fact, in some respects, very opposite ways. As I mentioned earlier, one of the telltale signs of someone under the influence of alcohol is they tend to become overconfident in their driving abilities. And as a result, they tend to engage in more reckless driving behavior than they would when sober. They drive at a faster speed. They make more lane changes. They drive in a more aggressive manner. And when you ask them to assess their own performance, they tend to believe that they're performing better than they actually are. With cannabis, we tend to see a lot of shifts in the opposite direction. Individuals tend to become less confident in their ability to drive a vehicle safely. They become overly acutely aware of the fact that they are under the influence. And as a result, they try to minimize their risks during that period of time 
time by engaging in compensatory driving behavior. They engage in fewer lane changes. They drive at a more slow speed. They leave greater distance between their vehicle and the vehicle in front of them. They engage in behaviors that would allow them to try to minimize their risks. Whereas under the influence of alcohol, people tend, whether knowingly or unknowingly, to engage in behaviors that are more likely to maximize their risk of an accident. It is a consistent finding. Again, whether we're talking about driving on a closed course, driving in a driving simulating machine, or these early studies that we talked about from the Netherlands where individuals drove in actual real world traffic. Consistently across the board, subjects drive more slowly than they did at baseline in all of these different models. And again, just like driving more slowly is a consistent finding throughout the literature, this is also a consistent finding. Drivers under the influence of cannabis tend to weave. They weave more so under the influence of cannabis than they did at baseline. That is a finding we see again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And in terms of safety vis-a-vis the car in front of you, in terms of observation of traffic lights turning yellow or red, things like that? Yeah, they tend to leave more headway, again, because that's compensatory behavior. There are, in some instances, there can be some change in reaction time. They may react slightly more slowly, although that is an inconsistent finding. That is not a finding you see throughout the literature. You also see in some studies, but not others, a lack of driver's ability to respond quickly to things that might be in their peripheral vision as opposed to what's happening right in front of them. But what about tolerance? I mean, is it the question that if you're a regular marijuana user, as you get older, more experienced, you just develop a tolerance to the effects of marijuana? Or is it that I'm actually learning how to drive high? Or is that the same thing? No, I believe it's tolerance. The data on this, I think, is pretty clear and consistent. Certainly anecdotally, I'm sure you and your audience has heard that individuals that are more habitual consumers of cannabis perceive becoming tolerant to some degree. Certainly more so, or they have a more blunted effect than they might have had from cannabis when they were more naive to it. By tolerance, you mean basically experiencing less of the psychoactive effect of marijuana. Yes, yes. And, And the data backs that up. In fact, there's some recent data providing a biological theory as to why that would be the case. But clearly, I think it is safe to say that the more frequently a person uses cannabis, the more tolerant they become to some, not all of the effects of cannabis. But with respect to psychomotor influencing effects, those are effects that people do tend to become more tolerant to over time when, again, they're frequent users of cannabis. Now, of course, cannabis has a dose-related response. So even someone who might be tolerant to the effects of cannabis, if they were suddenly going to use a much more concentrated form of cannabis or a much more higher potent form of cannabis, one would not expect them to suddenly be tolerant to that dosage or that potency simply because they become somewhat tolerant to lower potency cannabis over time. Mm-hmm. Now, Paul, you're saying that when it comes to things like edibles and the drinkables and all these other sorts of things, there's really very little evidence out there right now as to whether or not their impact on driving will turn out to be similar to this impact of smoking marijuana. 
That is correct. Again, most of the studies, in fact, almost all of them, I can only think of a handful of exceptions, have looked at inhaled cannabis. I think researchers did this for a number of reasons. One, we're talking about, in some cases, studies going back 30, 40 years. Inhaling cannabis through joints or through marijuana cigarettes was the primary way people use cannabis at that time. So the studies reflect that. I think there's also some expediency to this as well. We know that the effects of inhaled cannabis are fairly rapid. So when designing a study, I think it's easier for researchers to design a study where people inhale cannabis and then they begin testing them literally minutes later, as opposed to if we were going to design a study looking at oral absorption of THC, we're going to be talking a much longer timeline and one that's much more variable from subject to subject to subject. You could have 20 subjects all taking the same oral dosage of THC, but the duration of effect and the onset of effects could literally be different for all 20 of them. Mm-hmm. But why is that so different from marijuana? There's somebody who's taking an edible every day. They're going to be familiar with the effects. They're going to be experienced. They're going to have tolerance, right? As opposed to somebody who's naive or doesn't know his dose. Is that radically different than it is with smokables? The difference between the two has to do with the fact there's much greater variation of effect from dose to dose with oral administration of THC. And that's simply due to what we call the pharmacokinetics of THC, which refers to how the body absorbs the active drug once it's been ingested. When a person inhales cannabis, THC goes from the lungs to the bloodstream very quickly and then passes the blood-brain barrier within minutes, and a person begins to feel the effects during that period of time. It's a very different process when a person consumes THC orally, like in an edible. In that case, they consume an edible, THC goes to the stomach. From there, it goes to the liver. The liver metabolizes THC, and this is a key point. And when it does so, it converts THC to another equipotent, or some people would argue even more potent metabolite or byproduct known as 11-hydroxy-THC. From the liver, then both 11-hydroxy-THC and THC go to the bloodstream. They then go past the blood-brain barrier. That's why then 90 minutes, 120 minutes later, a person begins to feel the effects. But unlike the effects they typically feel with smoking cannabis, where they're largely just feeling the effects of THC, in this case, they're feeling the effects of simultaneously of THC and 11-hydroxy-THC. And because that 11-hydroxy-THC is at least as potent as THC, they're feeling not only a more amplified effect, but a slightly different effect. They're feeling the effect of two psychoactive compounds at that point in time. And the degree to which the liver, how much 11-hydroxy-THC it produces, that can change from day to day based on whether a person has a full stomach or an empty stomach or the way their body at that moment metabolized THC. It's a very different, less predictable experience. I see. And comparing all this to alcohol, with alcohol, people develop a tolerance to the psychoactive effects as well. But is that less consequential in terms of the safety of their driving than it is with marijuana? 
You know, that's a very good question, Ethan. We hear this from time to time from the public policy standpoint. When you bring up things like, well, you know, people become tolerant to all sorts of substances that can influence driving behavior. But when we look at, say, traffic safety laws as they pertain for alcohol, there is no exception that says, well, hey, this is the standard that we hold some people up to for driving under the influence, but we hold individuals who are alcoholics or habitual drinkers to a different standard because they have tolerance. I think it's an interesting philosophical discussion. I don't have the answer in that I'm simply not as familiar with some of the literature with regard to tolerance for alcohol and the degree to which somebody who is a habitual alcohol drinker develops a greater tolerance for the skills necessary to drive a vehicle safely. But certainly we are aware that alcohol does impact people differently depending on if they are more or less naive or more or less experienced with the drug. And we know this comes into play even with traffic safety laws in that you can have a person who is very naive to alcohol clearly be under the influence by having one or two drinks and being below the 0.08 threshold. And conversely, you could theoretically have somebody who is a much more experienced alcohol drinker who would perform better than that naive person, even though they might have a higher blood alcohol content at that time. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second grade teacher, and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow, 
to a calm and relaxing place to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. When it comes to alcohol, right, it's now accepted across the United States, right, that 0.08 of blood alcohol content is the maximum, except in Utah, where I think it's 0.05. Correct. And in most states, they basically have either zero or 0.02 for people under the age of 21, and something either at the kid level or slightly above for commercial drivers, bus drivers, things like that. But in the case of cannabis, it sounds like that sort of per se level, that it makes some sense in the alcohol field. But even to the extent it does make sense in the alcohol field, given the variability of how people experience alcohol, it makes dramatically less sense in the marijuana field, the cannabis field, whether you're talking about certainly urine, which can show up for weeks afterward, but even blood tests. Is that right? And why? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And there's a whole lot to unpack here with what you said. First, with respect to alcohol, you're correct that there is this 0.08 fairly universal standard that exists in almost every state except for Utah. But let's keep in mind, it wasn't always 0.08. This standard has changed over time to some degree based on what the science tells us, but by and large, it's also changed just with respect to what society will tolerate. The fact is, it used to be higher in this country. Now it's 0.08. There is a push to make it 0.05. But if we look abroad, there's some countries like Sweden where the limit's 0.02. Now, they're not looking at different data in Sweden and and basing their public policy off different data than we are here. We understand that the higher blood alcohol content one has, the more likely to engage in activities that are going to increase their risk of accident. So it's not just about that. It's about what, as a society, what risk we're willing and unwilling to accept. And clearly in some European countries and some other parts of the world, I would dare say where alcohol is less sort of entrenched in the culture, they're less willing to accept driving accidents attributable to alcohol. And in the United States, we're more willing to accept it. But we're less willing to accept it now than we might have been several decades ago. And that's why the standard has gone down. But Mm -hmm. with respect to how alcohol is very different, the real key is that we know through decades worth of data that there is a correlation between the more one drinks and the higher their blood alcohol content and that their maximal level of driving impairment coincides with their maximal blood alcohol levels. 
Okay, so as blood mm-hmm. alcohol levels rise, a person's driving performance becomes worse, and that coincides with the more they drink. And then, as their levels, their blood alcohol content levels fall, they begin to return to baseline performance. So we have this linear model. That linear model doesn't exist for cannabis. And frankly, we don't have to just single out cannabis here. It doesn't exist for the majority of psychotropic substances that impair driving performance. That's why this per se model that has changed over the years and that doesn't even have a global consensus only exists for alcohol. If alcohol didn't follow this linear model because the body largely absorbs alcohol the same way each time and we can make assessments based on weight with regard to blood alcohol levels, if we didn't have that linear correlation, we wouldn't have per se levels for alcohol. In fact, per se levels for alcohol only date back about 40 or 50 years. The reason we don't have these levels for cannabis or opioids or a number of other drugs that we know impact driving performance is because there is no linear correlation. When a person inhales cannabis, their THC blood levels are highest within five to 10 minutes after inhaling cannabis. But as we talked about earlier, their driving performance is going to be most impacted 20 to 60 minutes after they'd inhaled cannabis. But during that period of time, their THC blood levels aren't going up. They're actually going down. So they're falling at a time when a person is most likely to be under the influence. And then after they fall rapidly, they begin to plateau about three or four hours after inhalation. And they don't go down to zero, but they plateau around two or three nanograms per milliliter. And they stay there for hours so that those levels can still be detectable long after the effects of THC have worn off. So we have this absolute lack of correlation where we can detect THC in blood, but that test will not tell us when this person was most recently exposed to cannabis, and it doesn't tell us anything with respect to whether or not they're impaired. Mm-hmm. We all agree that driving under the influence of cannabis can be somewhat problematic, and we'll get into shortly how it compares to other risks. But in terms of what the testing should be, I mean, we hear opponents of legalization saying we can't legalize marijuana until we figure out this driving under the influence of marijuana issue, right? I mean, you hear that being used as a political issue, but it's also being raised in a legitimate way by law enforcement who say, you know, we don't know exactly how to handle this or what to do. So when you look at the other things that are emerging, the uh, sort of breath type things or swabbing the mouth for saliva, or I think somebody came up with an app of some sort. What do you think are the cutting edge, the most practical, the most pragmatic in terms of detecting impaired driving involving cannabis? Well, number one, we need to get away from drug detection because that's all a breathalyzer test, for instance, is. Now, keep in mind, we have breathalyzers that detect the level of alcohol in breath. That test in and of itself would be useless if we didn't have other data correlating blood alcohol levels with impairment. So keep in mind, the only reason a breathalyzer detection test is valid and has utility for alcohol is because we have the other side of the coin. We have all of this data that tells us with some degree of certainty that if a person tests positive at this level, we can make these presumptions. 
We lack the ability to make those presumptions with cannabis. And again, with all of these other substances out there that also impair driving performance. So the question here isn't, can we come up with a THC detection test, for instance, even a roadside detection test? We already have those. We have oral saliva testing that could be administered at the side of the road. We have breath detection testing for THC. That's not the problem. The problem is we don't learn any information that we need to know from those tests. Simply detecting somebody with THC in their breath tells us very little because we can't correlate the detection regardless of the quantity detected with recent exposure and with impairment of performance. So we need to move away from this idea that we need to have different ways to detect certain compounds in one system to the question of how do we have the ability to provide law enforcement officers with the ability to use validated tests and measurements of impairment of performance. We know that there are different skills and behaviors that tend to be influenced by cannabis. We mentioned reaction time earlier. Another one is short-term memory recall. Another objective metric is perception of time. That's confirmed in the literature. People under the influence of cannabis tend to underestimate the passage of time. So the idea here is that we could train officers like we do already. We have drug recognition evaluators, police officers who go through training and they have a 12-step protocol to determine if one is under the influence of a substance other than alcohol based on how these subjects perform on this 12-point protocol. We can incorporate into those sort of protocols these validated measurements for whether or not someone's under the influence of cannabis. The time perception test within the DRE is known as the Romberg test. It's already there. But there's other parts of that 12-step protocol that are really highly questionable, looking at things like pupil dilation that really isn't relevant or not to whether one may or may not be under the influence of cannabis. But we could incorporate things like short-term memory recall using app technology. We could incorporate reaction time by having individuals do handheld performance tests. I think that's really the future of where this needs to go, because then we're we're not just addressing the issue of allowing officers to identify who may or may not be driving under the influence of cannabis, but it would allow officers to determine who may or may not simply be driving impaired, regardless of why they're driving impaired, whether it's from a lack of sleep or whether it's from a prescription medication or whether it's from a controlled substance. So there's some analogies here between testing of the impact of drugs on driving and testing about whether somebody's impaired in the workplace, where ultimately it's not did you or didn't you consume a drug, it's are you in fact able to do the job you're called upon to do, whether it's driving or your work job, in a responsible and safe way. Absolutely. And we're seeing these sort of technologies being developed. There's a handheld technology known as Druid that is been used in clinical studies. There's a very interesting study looking at Druid and comparing the results using Druid to the results of officers who are trained in standardized field testing. 
So individuals in the study either were or were not under the influence of cannabis. And officers, again, trained officers ran them through the standard field sobriety test battery. And they also tested them using the components of the Druid app, which again, measures things like short-term memory recall, reaction time, perception of time, perception of the passage of time. And what the study found was that it was the use of the impairment application, the Druid app, that was more sensitive and more accurate in identifying the subjects who were actually under the influence of cannabis than was the field sobriety test. Things like the one leg stand, the walk and turn, tests that have been in existence for decades, but believe it or not, Ethan, have only been validated to identify individuals under the influence of alcohol. And believe me, I know plenty of defense attorneys who would claim that even that part of the equation is questionable. But the reality is, is when scientists have taken the field sobriety test and applied it to subjects under the influence of other substances other than alcohol, there's no correlation between how subjects perform on those tests and whether or not they're actually impaired. Unfortunately, all these decades later, many police are still using the field sobriety test to make determinations or guesstimates about whether people are impaired by substances other than alcohol, when again, the test was never designed for that purpose. Mm -hmm. So you're a fan of the Druid app as perhaps being one of the best options out there for detecting real impairment. I do. Because again, I'm aware of the different components of the tests and that those are scientifically validated measurements in this case for cannabis. Now, you know, critics of something like this will say, you know, the problem here, Paul, is how are we going to establish the baseline performance? Because every individual is going to have a different baseline. And perhaps an app like this is a valid technology for the user for somebody who is wondering whether or not they are safe to drive, but it would be more difficult to use in the workplace or to have used by law enforcement because they won't know if the person is testing in a way that varies from their baseline performance. To which I'd say, the way we go about trying to solve that problem and the way the makers of Druid are in fact going about this is by having massive amounts of people use the app to gauge baseline performance and then have them use the app after they've used a particular substance so we can have generalized baselines. So we can have some idea what the average person's performance is on this app versus their average performance if in fact they're impaired. And we essentially have baseline data that we can compare somebody's performance to. I think there is a feasibility in being able to do that. It's not perfect. But it provides, I think, a very important and necessary tool that currently we're lacking, both in the workplace and, again, with respect to this question of roadside testing. Mm -hmm. Paul, one of the things I've liked about the way that you've written and spoken on this issue is the way in which you compare the relative risks of driving into the influence of cannabis to other substances and also to other activities and putting it in perspective, right? And so we all know that alcohol, by and large, is more dangerous than cannabis for the vast majority of drivers. We also know that combining drugs, if you combine alcohol with marijuana, it escalates everything. If you combine opioids or benzos like Valium or Ambulance, 
whatever, it escalates the dangers. I think at one point I read that you were saying that even things like antihistamines or antibiotics have some psychoactive effect that can impact driving. So could you put the risk element of cannabis, if you compare driving levels of cannabis with driving drug-free and then with driving under the influence of other substances, how does it rate compared to all of these? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question, Ethan, because context is really key here. And there is a spectrum. There is a spectrum of risk and there are behaviors people engage in every day that increase, at least theoretically, their risk of a motor vehicle accident. So the question really shouldn't be, does cannabis potentially increase this risk? The question should be, where on the spectrum of increased risks does cannabis fall? And we have, again, so much data assessing this issue. Much of the data being, you know, very consistent, yielding the same result again and again. So to answer this question, we need to have an understanding of what is an odds ratio. And an odds ratio estimates the probability of an event, like say in this case, a motor vehicle accident, versus the probability that such an event will not occur. And so if there is a greater likelihood that engaging in a certain behavior is more likely to increase the likelihood of a certain outcome, that leads to an odds ratio that is greater than one. If the behavior has no impact on increasing or decreasing the risk of an outcome, then you have an odds ratio of one. And of course, if the behavior you engage in decreased the risk of that outcome, you would have an odds ratio below one. If you look at the dozens and dozens of studies that have been performed throughout the world to assess do people that have THC in their system or do THC positive drivers, do they have a greater or a lesser likelihood than a drug-free driver in being involved in a motor vehicle accident? You see that the odds ratio associated with a THC positive driver tends to be between about 1.2 and 1.4. That translates to about a 20 to 40% increased risk of accident compared to a drug-free driver. Now, some individuals might say, well, Paul, that sounds really high. That sounds really problematic. The reality is on this spectrum we talked about of behaviors that people engage in every day, an odds ratio of 1.2 or 1.3 is exceedingly low. Again, you mentioned alcohol earlier. Individuals who are alcohol positive drivers, but positive for levels of alcohol below the legal limits, tend to at a minimum have an odds ratio of four, which would make them four times more likely to be involved in a motor vehicle accident compared to an alcohol-free driver. You mentioned antihistamines earlier. The odds ratio associated with antihistamines is about 1.12 or 12%. It's slightly lower than the risk associated with cannabis, but it's higher than one. That's not because I think antihistamines or taking antihistamines are impairing people's ability to drive, but because I would presume that people taking antihistamines are not feeling very well that day, and they may be more distracted drivers. We see the same result with penicillin, for instance. Again, I'd argue people that are sick are taking penicillin, they're more distracted drivers, therefore they're more likely to be engaged in accidents. Driving with two or more people in the same vehicle 
doubles the risk of an auto accident. And certainly one can have multiple passengers in the car and you're not violating the traffic safety laws, but we know that behavior is associated with an increased risk of accident. Tuning the radio nearly doubles one's risk of accident. And certainly some of the drugs you mentioned, opioids, we associate with a doubling the risk of motor vehicle accident. Use of benzodiazepines more than double the risk of accident. Use of amphetamines more than six times the risk of accident. So again, context here is very important. It's not saying that cannabis doesn't potentially influence some of the skills necessary to drive a vehicle safely. It's not saying that THC positive drivers present no risk, but the risk they do present compared to so many of these other behaviors is relatively low. And let me just conclude this by saying these figures apply to individuals who test positive for THC alone, because you are absolutely correct that this risk goes up exponentially when THC is used in combination with alcohol. I worry about the idea of passing these arbitrary one-size-fits-all inflexible standards when we know that there is so much variability here. I also think it is entirely reasonable to expect there to be a preponderance of evidence showing impairment of driving performance in order for the state or a prosecutor to get a impaired driving conviction. Again, if we're looking at this from a legal standpoint, in the majority of states right now, in order to charge somebody with driving under the influence of marijuana, the state has to establish that there was evidence the driver recently consumed cannabis and that consumption impaired their ability to drive a motor vehicle safely. I don't think that's a very difficult standard for the state to meet. And I say this from the standpoint of someone who has been a legal consultant and advisor and involved in dozens in the defense of dozens and dozens of these sorts of prosecutions. I know the evidence that is presented in these cases. Usually the driver admits to having used cannabis. Usually there's evidence of recent use of cannabis in the car. Usually you have a person engaging in very poor performance when the DRE is interacting with them or when the arresting officer is interacting with them. There is usually quite a bit of evidence, including the reason for the pullover itself. Well, the person weaved across the median, the person refused to stop at the stop sign. That totality of evidence, I believe, is what ought to be necessary to go forward with and get a DUI conviction. That's the way we do this when it comes to other substances. Frankly, it's also the way we do prosecutions with regard to alcohol in instances where somebody seems to be, based on their driving, impaired by alcohol, but is under the 0.08 limit. Police don't just let that person go and say, well, go ahead, go on your way. I think you're too impaired to drive, but you're under the 0.08. Nothing I can do about it. No, they charge them with DUI. And then they have to meet the same standard for a DUI alcohol conviction that they would have to meet for a DUI drug conviction. And I can tell you, when we look at data with regard to drug driving convictions in states like Washington and other states, there's almost no criminal prosecution that is more likely to yield a criminal conviction than driving under the influence. 
I've seen no evidence that the law is not sufficient or that officers and prosecutors are unable to meet their burden of proof in these cases. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hold up. 
Paul, I got a proposal for you. So given what you said before about tolerance as well, what do you think about the idea that bureaus of motor vehicles should be able to give a test to drivers where somebody shows up and says, I want to get a stamp on my driver's license that allows me to drive under the influence of cannabis. And that the Bureau of Motor Vehicle should administer tests where people, a driver, gets high before driving, and then has the same kind of test that they might have or a similar sort of test they have, you know, like when they first get their driver's license, right? And if they can establish that their driving is unaffected by their cannabis consumption, they would get a stamp saying, I'm okay to drive high. What do you think? Well, that's why I love you, Ethan. You're a big picture guy. You're a, <laughs> um, I, it's the first time I've heard such a proposal. It's the first time I've considered such a proposal. I would dare say I think there's counter proposals that are more realistic because they're more simplistic. Look, one lesson I think we can take away from our experience with driving under the influence of alcohol is not that we need a breathalyzer test for marijuana, which I think would have no utility. But is this, I'm old enough to remember when you could drive with an open container of alcohol in the car, and then you couldn't. Because again, our American culture changed. The level with which we prioritize trying to discourage driving under the influence changed. And then the states changed their law and said, you know what? If you're driving a vehicle, you simply can't have an open container of booze in the car. Doesn't matter if you could say, well, look, I just, I'm drinking one beer and driving. I'm not drunk. It doesn't matter. The state says you can't do that. When I talk to people about this issue, you know, Ethan, they don't know a metabolite from a nanogram and they don't want to. They don't care if somebody's operating a motor vehicle with five nanograms of THC in their blood or 20 nanograms of carboxy THC in their urine because they don't know what those things are and they don't know what those numbers mean. What they tell me is, I don't want someone smoking pot and driving. That's what they say. So why not apply a similar standard like we have with the open container law that says, look, if you're going to get behind the wheel, there's no smoking in the car. You're not smoking, your passengers aren't smoking, and if a law enforcement officer pulls you over and finds evidence that somebody's been smoking in the car, you've all violated the traffic safety law. That could be the arbitrary line I could live with. And in those cases, there'd be no need to even try to establish whether or not the person was impaired or under the influence because they've broken the law simply by the act of using cannabis while driving. Well, look, you're being very pragmatic here. I do appreciate that. When we look around the country at the various states, are there states that are just doing this absolutely wrong in terms of like per se amounts for marijuana? And are there some states that are doing it sort of better than most? And for that matter, what about internationally? Unfortunately, I wouldn't say there's really an example of anyone getting this totally right. But of course, we do have states like, say, California that has had medical access now for several decades and adult use access for several years. And they've maintained the same traffic laws during this entire period of time. They have an effect-based standard, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, is the standard that the majority of states have that say, look, this isn't about what levels you may or may not have of some compound in your blood or urine. This 
This is about whether the state can prove you recently consumed a psychoactive substance and whether you demonstrably were impaired by that psychoactive substance while you were driving. Again, I think that's the way we do it, but I think we could do it better. I think we could have better training for drug recognition evaluators. I think we could have more of them. I think any legalization uh, law or that law becoming enacted should go part and parcel with a public service campaign that alerts people to the potential risks about drug driving, that makes people aware that such behavior is illegal. I think retailers who are selling these products could be trained with regard to messaging and talking about risks of drug driving. I think there is a lot more that we could do to bring attention and awareness to this issue and to educate the consumers to dissuade them from engaging in this behavior. And then, of course, there's some examples of states that I think are going about this all wrong. Washington state is a state that imposes an inflexible five nanogram per milliliter standard for the detection of THC in blood. We can't correlate five nanograms of THC with either recent use of cannabis or impairment. Somebody might have five nanograms of THC because they used cannabis 90 minutes ago or because they used it five days ago. There's no ability for us to back extrapolate based on that test result. That's a bad hmm. law. Hmm. Interesting. So, Paul, you know, I see all these studies coming out. You know, this has been for years now. Did the legalization of medical marijuana, these are the early studies, increase auto accidents or not? And more recently, did the legalization of marijuana in a particular state increase auto accidents, auto fatalities or not? Sure. That's a great question. This is probably... The one question post-legalization that is asked the most, either this or what's the impact on kids? Are more kids going to use marijuana after legalization than did before? Just like that question, people ask, well, what's the impact on traffic safety? With regard to medical marijuana laws, and I would dare say there's very few researchers that are studying the impact of medical marijuana legalization on traffic safety anymore. For quite some time there were, but now it's moved on to looking at the effect of adult use laws. But if we looked at the totality of data looking at traffic safety trends post-medical marijuana, we saw no uptick in traffic accidents. In fact, in a number of states, we saw a decrease, and some studies also showed an overall decrease in accidents overall, including accidents due to alcohol and accidents due to opioids. With regard to adult use, which is what is really more on people's minds now, initially, sort of the first wave of studies we saw coming out of Colorado and Washington and Oregon, we saw no uptick in accident rates. And then as the pools gotten somewhat larger, and I would dare say more importantly, retail access has become more prevalent in some of these states, some of this data has gotten more inconsistent. In particular, there's some data out of Colorado that shows an uptick in accidents. And then conversely, you'll see data from a state like Nevada that over the same period of time shows a decrease in accidents. So what to make of this? And I would dare say there is variabilities here, or there are confounding factors here that are leading to these disparate results that probably have very little to do with marijuana or the law. Because when we look at, say, a state like Colorado, that's had a very different result with regard to traffic safety than a state like Nevada, the reality is, is they essentially have the same law. 
they have the same regulatory scheme. If marijuana was independently linked to this change in traffic safety patterns or driving habits, we should see consistent results across the board, but we're not. We're seeing a wide variation in traffic safety from state to state to state. I think that has a whole lot less to do with marijuana and marijuana law and a whole lot more with other demographic shifts and changes in driving behavior that are taking place in some states and not others over these same periods of time. Mm-hmm. Curious, given that it's a, a federal agency, right, the National Highway Safety, uh, Traffic Safety Administration, between the study it did back in 1993, finding no difference between marijuana users and drug-free drivers, and then you're describing this 2015 study as sort of a gold standard, has the agency been out there in basically being frank about these results, or do they feel a need to pull their punches because they don't want to be risked being seen as promoting the wrong message? That's a great question, Ethan. I'm glad you asked. Normal in our fact sheets and in my messaging about cannabis and driving, I cite NHTSA probably more than any other source. I cite their studies. I cite their fact sheets. I cite their website, all of which contain, I would dare say, very objective, nonpartisan, non-rhetorical, evidence-based information about cannabis and driving and accident safety and traffic risk. Yet publicly, I'm really not aware of representatives from NHTSA speaking out on this issue whatsoever. Now, let me give you an anecdote that always stood in my mind. I was asked to testify before legislative hearings in Washington state many years ago, shortly after legalization had passed. And there were hearings that were being held on drug driving and in particular, this troubling five nanogram standard that had been enacted part and parcel with legalization. And I flew into Olympia And I was in the office of the member of the state legislature who was the chair of this committee who had called for these hearings. And I said, who else are you bringing into this hearing? And he mentioned, for instance, Marilyn Hustis, who at the time worked at the NIDA and also has probably forgotten more about this issue than 99.9% of people know. A very well-respected voice in this arena. And he mentioned another researcher who at the time had published several papers on this issue, who at the time was at Yale, but has since passed away, unfortunately. And I told him, I said, that's great. You've got a really good panel of experts here. But who you really ought to have here is someone from NHTSA because they've sponsored the research that we're all going to be talking about. And he said, you know what? I have a great relationship with NHTSA. I've worked with that agency on a number of other traffic safety issues over the years. We worked with them when we passed seatbelt legislation here in Washington state. I'm going to take you up on that. I'm going to contact them and we're going to hold another round of hearings and NHTSA will be there. Well, sure enough, a few weeks later, they held another round of hearings, but there was no representative from NHTSA testifying. So I contacted the chair once again, and I said, what happened? And he said, you know, Paul, it's the strangest thing. I've had good relationships with this agency for years. I've never had any issue with them. But when I talked to them about testifying on this issue, they just showed absolutely no interest. And now, as best I can tell, that hasn't changed. And it's really unfortunate because you have states and lawmakers and the public all grappling with this issue. And arguably, 
the premier traffic safety agency in this country that actually would theoretically have a lot to say and would be listened to is largely silent on the issue. Again, at least publicly. If you want to go into their website and their archives, you will find most of the information we've discussed today. Yeah, sounds a lot like National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is only slightly beginning to evolve now. But we exist in order to find what's wrong with drugs, to study drug abuse, not drug use or safety or levels of safety. And it sounds like NHTSA was a little bit in the same situation where they would find themselves fearing a headline in which it says NHTSA officer explains that marijuana presents relatively low level of risk compared to A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Let me tell you this, Ethan. In the 2015 NHTSA study that took place at Virginia Beach, arguably the most important study we have on this issue, it used the very same methodology that was used to develop the initial per se standards for driving under the influence of alcohol. This study took years to conduct. I remember waiting for so long for the results of this report. I remember an interaction I had with Marilyn Hustis at a conference several years earlier where we were debating different studies. And we agreed that I said, when NHTSA comes out with this study, I will live or die by the results of that study because that's really going to tell us what we need to know. And we both agreed on that. I recall when they dropped that study, they did so on a Friday afternoon at about 4.30 in the afternoon before a three-day weekend, before a holiday on Monday. That study was not meant Uh to get any attention. Oh, very interesting. So, Paul, what about other types of marijuana and locomotion? Like, I remember hearing forever that, well, you know, the risks of marijuana driving are typically overstated. But when it comes to flying, what pilots need and simulators there, there's a really negative result. And then conversely, I was sort of in prepping for my conversation with you. I looked at marijuana and bicycling, and there was a little study saying no impact. And then I wonder about these things that show people who are motorboating, you know, having more accidents. And is it because of alcohol or marijuana? marijuana. But what can you tell us about marijuana's effect on other types of locomotion? Yeah, not as much. Again, the focus here has really been on driving. And when we talk about the skills that are influenced by cannabis, again, we're talking about skills that really overlap with some of the skills needed to drive a motor vehicle safely. I'm not a pilot. I would imagine there are a whole lot more and perhaps different skill sets that are necessary to operate or fly a plane safely than might be to drive a motor vehicle safely. Or perhaps I'm wrong and there's a lot of overlap and they're very similar. I really don't know. I don't think brake latency perhaps would be an issue with flying in a jet airliner, for instance. Same thing with motorboating. So again, I think those are things that theoretically We can speculate about, but there's very little data. There was a study, a very famous study, uh, you might remember it, Ethan, that looked at pilots or used a flight simulator Mm -hmm. study, and it looked at individuals who were users of marijuana but hadn't used marijuana in the previous 24 hours that showed their performance on a flight simulator was poorer than those individuals who didn't use marijuana at all. And the federal government would trot out this study probably for the first decade and a half of my work at Normal. The claim that marijuana could impact your cognitive and behavioral skills for 24 hours later, but I haven't seen 
seen anyone talk about that that study in a while. And I can say when the time came to replicate those results, they were not replicated. And I haven't heard much about it since. Uh, would you have any problem knowing that your Uber or Lyft driver was a daily marijuana consumer? I would not. I would have a problem if I was aware or if they notified me of the fact that they had just consumed marijuana in the prior 60 minutes or 30 minutes mm -hmm. before picking me mm -hmm. up. You know, Paul, I'm also thinking about some of the absurdities of the marijuana laws and the number of states where the penalty for marijuana possession was having your driver's license taken away. Even if you were, you know, stopped or arrested, just taking a walk on the street or in a park or what have you. And I wonder what's happened with those laws and how did they ever get going in the first place? So those laws or the passage of those laws predated me. When I first came on board in the mid-1990s, we were engaged in a push going from state to state to repeal those laws. And that push has largely been successful. I'm not sure if there are... There may be one or two states that maintain those penalties, but the overwhelming majority of states did not. Although in that case, the law was linking the punishment for marijuana with driving, this had nothing to do with driving safety. It had to do with ways the government was seeking to coerce behavior, okay? There's an understanding that we live in a society that in most places in this country, one requires a motor vehicle and a license to get from place to place, to get to their job, to get to school, wherever it may be. So punishing a person for engaging in certain behaviors by restricting or pulling that license, that is a very significant penalty. So the idea here was to coerce people to change behavior that they wouldn't otherwise change. The government realized that simply criminalizing marijuana wasn't enough to get people to change their behavior. The threaten to punish people with incarceration or arrest wasn't necessarily enough. But this idea of taking away their license for long periods of time, perhaps that would be enough to get these people to change their behavior. That was the thinking behind that law. And I'll tell you this, Ethan, it was the thinking behind the initial per se laws that were passed for cannabis and driving. And I can say that with certainty because I was at the conferences, the government-sponsored conferences, where DuPont and others were there articulating from the podium that these laws weren't about traffic safety, they weren't about impairment, they were about compelling people to stop using marijuana. You should explain who DuPont is, not the chemical company, but Bob DuPont. Robert DuPont, who was what might have been described as the drug czar, they didn't really call it back then, under the Gerald Ford administration in the mid-70s, and initially a supporter of cannabis decriminalization, who then took a radical turn in the other direction, claiming, with some basis, I guess, that he was concerned about increasing adolescent marijuana use, but then became a proponent of essentially drug testing all of American society. Yeah, he was. <laughs> I, I won't go any further uh, in describing him. Well, Paul, I'll tell you, this has been a fascinating conversation. The last thing I want to ask you is it sounds like in addition to testifying before state legislatures and other committees, you've also had a fair bit of experience testifying as an expert witness in cases involving marijuana and driving. And any major takeaways or highlights of those experiences? Yes. Don't believe representatives of law enforcement when they publicly say they lack the skills and the tools 
to identify people driving under the influence of cannabis. I know that every time this discussion comes up in a state, you're going to hear from law enforcement and cops who are going to say that. They're going to put out that narrative. But let me tell you this. Those same police officers, when they're in a court of law, and I've been in courts of law with them in dozens of cases involving alleged drug driving behavior, when they take the stand and they are asked, officers such and such, what led you to believe that the defendant was under the influence of marijuana? You know what they don't say, Ethan? They don't say, you know, I got to be honest with you. We don't really have a good tool to determine if someone's under the influence of marijuana. No, they take the stand and they say, well, let me tell you all the ways that I know this defendant's under the influence of marijuana. They go into their years of training. They go into their skills. They say, we've done a field sobriety test. We have a toxicology result. All of my training led me to be able to identify. I could smell marijuana. I saw the redness in their eyes. They had slurred speech. I've gone to the Aride training that NHTSA provides. They will go on and on about their qualifications and their expertise in determining whether someone's under the influence of marijuana. So the fact is police by their own admission already have adequate and sufficient tools to make these determinations. That should not be an impediment to changing the legal status for the responsible possession and use of cannabis. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. So your takeaway now, your basic harm reduction advisory with marijuana, do I take it to be if you smoke marijuana, don't drive in the first hour, don't mix with other drugs? What else? Absolutely. And I want to be very clear on this. You know, Norval's position is to represent the responsible cannabis use and the responsible cannabis consumer. And you can go right to our website and find a resolution that was enacted now several decades ago by Normal's board of directors about our policy with regard to drug driving. And it says right there in black and white, do not operate a motor vehicle or heavy machinery if one is under the influence of marijuana. So again, our position is very clear on this. We know that the window of impairment is generally most acute during that first hour, but can extend to about three to four hours. So look, don't drive during that period of time. Don't consume alcohol with cannabis and even consider driving. Be aware of your tolerance. Be an educated consumer to understand that the greater the potency, the greater dose, the more acute effect it can have. Understand that even individuals who are habitual users of cannabis still experience a synergistic adverse effect when they use cannabis with alcohol. Understand that the length of time and type of impairment and duration of impairment and time of onset is going to be very different if one inhales cannabis versus if they take it orally. Again, there's a lot to understand and unpack here, but a lot of this is really just basic social responsibility. All of us drive on the same roads. All of us want safe roads. None of us want impaired drivers on the road. And our goal in changing marijuana policy is to not 
inadvertently impact traffic safety. That's not what we're about doing. We want to change the marijuana laws and strengthen traffic mm-hmm. safety. And for the people who are going to smoke marijuana and drive nonetheless, are there tips? When I think about it, I would say, hey, you know, you got to make that extra effort to look in the rear view and side view mirror. You have to check your speed because you may be driving at a dangerously slow speed. If something happens in front of you, be aware that you're somewhat altered and therefore pull over or stop. You know, the little kind of tips for people who are high and know they're high still want to drive, basically feel safe, have a high level of tolerance, but are not 100%. Anything else you would add to that? Again, be aware of what the data shows. Be aware that you're more likely to weave if one is in that condition. For instance, be aware that your reaction time might be compromised. So make sure you're not tailgating. Obviously, again, be aware of the evidence and try to act accordingly. One final thing I might say too is this idea about having a targeted messaging, a targeted PSA campaign, making people aware of these facts and really being particular who we target. Because we know through data that the people most likely to not take this advice, that are most likely to drive behind the wheel, are younger drivers. Drivers who are less experienced with their use of cannabis and also less experienced drivers. So these are the people that potentially are at the greatest risk. And those are the folks that I think our efforts really need to be targeted toward. And also one way we might be able to reduce that behavior is by not criminalizing use of cannabis in certain places. Because I would dare say the reason many young people smoke cannabis behind the wheel and many older people don't is because young people are looking for a place to clandestinely use cannabis. Mm -hmm. And they think they can get in their car and drive out on a rural road and that way they won't get caught. Mm -hmm. Well, they may not be caught by their parents, but again, they're engaging in activity that creates a greater societal risk for all of us. Paul, on that note, I want to thank you ever so much for sharing your wisdom with me and the listeners to Psychoactive. So thank you, and I hope to see you soon. Uh, The feeling's mutual, Ethan. Thank you for having me, and it's been fun. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with the founder of Normal, the marijuana consumer organization. He's Keith Strop, and will be focusing on the first generation of marijuana reform back in the 1970s. 
I had been smoking for five or six years and I couldn't understand why it was considered a crime and why so many people were having their lives wrecked. To me, it was just a milder version and a safer version of using alcohol. And so I thought, let's start a lobby to legalize marijuana. And in uh, October of 1970, we formed Normal. And because of my work with Ralph Nader, we formed it as a consumer lobby. And the consumer in this case, of course, is the marijuana smoker. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, Every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.